And welcome to the Country Cup circuit. Terrific. Thanks, Gareth. Hi, team. How good was George Hanlon? Uh, absolute master of uh, not only staying horses, but sprinting horses. But he, uh, he had that wonderful run in the Moe Cup, uh, 93, 94, 95, 96, with a horse called Royal Snack. And I think I called him in those four straight... Um, Moe Cup wins, one of them Patrick Payne rode the horse um, and the horse sort of, George was able to beat the handicapper each time because I think his winning weights varied between 53, 55, 56 and a half twice so he never actually uh, got away up into the higher weights and George placed him beautifully. Uh, he was a terrific little galloper, um, Royal Snack, and he, he had longevity and George could keep him up and um, he used to target this race so uh, he was a beauty but he he had a horse called Noble Comet, who ran second to Kiwi in 82 in the 83 in the Melbourne Cup, then ran uh, third, I think it was, back in 82. Um, uh, Mintmaster was another prolific country cup winner, won a Warnable Cup, Boardwalk Angel, won a, a Goodwood in South Australia, of course, Black Knight, uh, won the Melbourne Cup for George in 84, and he won the Melbourne Cup with R1 in 78, and Piping Lane in 1972, George trained so the three Melbourne Cup winners, and we can even go further back, Gareth, uh, right back to the 60s. Yeah. When I was a little kid, um, correct, won the new market in 1960 and 1961. And story used to go uh, from down at Mordialic where George trained at uh, Epsom and Mentone that one day, I think it was on the Friday before the new market, uh, correct, got away from the stables. These guys would have stables, you know, behind their homes and uh, correct got away and bolted down the street and finished up, you know, in another neighbourhood. Um, <laughs> on the evening, one of the trainers said <laughs> he, he went out the front and flying past was, you know, the favourite for the new market for the next day and about 100 metres behind was George and his statesman Holden trying to find him. <laughs> <laughs> and that would have been a sight to see around the Flemington uh, precinct. And, Brian, just you even rattling off his, you know, feats, they're just incredible. You said the three Melbourne Cups, and we were talking before you come on air, he was an interesting character. Those who knew him and were close with him probably knew what he was thinking, but how was he, you know, as a person? Uh, he, was, he, was, he was a good guy, George. Um, I remember... Yeah, the press would sort of try and get a, a line out of him, and he, he was too clever for all of us. <laughs> and he'd leave you wondering, and he'd just tilt his hat forward and walk off. So he, he didn't know what he actually told you. And I remember way back in the 70s, I was doing the trackside interviews for 3UZ, the old station before it became 927 and RSN. And um, Burt Bryant was the commentator, and I was the junior race caller, but I was the interviewer on the day on, on the tape recorder. And uh, a horse called Taras Volva got beaten at short odds. It might have been a St. Ledger or something like that. And um, the press were all gathered around him. And here I am, I'm about 21 years of age or something, 22. And I said, oh, Mr. Hanlon, I'm Brian Martin. He said, how are you going? And I said, um, now, the horse has just been beaten. Uh, the crowd are booing over the fence. In those days, they used to. They're booing you and they're booing the horse. And he, George broke into booing himself. He started booing his own horse. Um, and I said, uh, Mr. Hanlon, will the horse still go to Sydney for the Sydney Derby, the HAC Derby? And he said to me, he said, would you take him? What do you think? Do you think he should go? And, and he turned the interview around to me, and I was just shaking him the boots. I mean, I had no idea what, what he was trying to, you know, achieve. But he scared the living daylights out of me. But I, I worked out what he was about sort of as time progressed, and he, uh, he was the master of one-liners and... Uh, very vague sort of guy. Um, <laughs> you didn't know what he was thinking. And the legendary urban myth used to go that 
George had parked his car, his statesman Holden, next to Bob Hoist, the trainer of Manicato, and the two cars were virtually identical in that float car park at Epsom. And many's the time on a Saturday morning, and in those days, the trainers would leave the keys in the, in the ignition, and if someone had to move the car to get a float in, etc., because it was all sort of one training family. And George apparently many times would jump in the wrong car and drive it. Boys <laughs> have to ring him and say, "George, will you bring your car?" Take yours, and that, they're, they're true stories. And um, there was another famous story. A lot of the apprentices would come from different countries, particularly from Italy and France and places like that, and come out and do work experience. And normally, they, particularly from from Japan, they'd send an interpreter with them. So George would take them on for three months and give them experience here. And a lot of them had had no experience. And George would quite often put them on a short price favourite because you know, they could claim three kilos at Ballarat or somewhere, and they'd slaughter them. Twelve <laughs> get beaten, a crowd would be booing and all that. And George had to issue the instructions via the interpreter, so it was a complete, you know, shamuzzle. And the kids would ride them accordingly, and the stewards called him in, and, you know, they'd grill him and say, well, look, you know, Mr Hanlon started six to four favourite. It's been beaten eight lengths, travelled 15 wide for the entire trip. <laughs> George had given some basic answer and the stewards would even be left guessing, you know, that's yeah. it's quite incredible. But he uh, he was admired by by all because of his genius as a horse trainer. He was a, you know, he's sort of like a, um, a horse whisperer in his own way and he, you know, if the gear broke, the saddle needed stitching or something like that. George would do it. That's the sort of horseman he was. I think at one stage he was a milkman in South Australia. Okay. Um, but he was just a master of getting horses, a la sort of like Bart Cummings, getting horses to peak to the minute on the day, whether it be a Melbourne Cup, a Sydney Cup, a Caulfield Cup. And he won them all. He won them all. And then he could get a top-class sprinter, you know, the high group one level and get it to win. Uh, after he trained down there at, uh, at Epsom and then Tony, he sort of wanted to go back towards the country and he moved down to Leopold. There's a great story behind a, a wonderful galloper called Rubiton who won the... Cox Blade in 87, uh, the horse was pulling too hard on the track at Flemington for Pat Barnes, who was over from Adelaide, and George said, uh, look, set the horse down to me here in the open paddocks and the hills I've got down here, and we'll settle him down. And uh, they got, they turned him right around at the time. They stopped him from pulling hard in his races, and the rest of history, he went sort of a couple of weeks later and went out and won the Cox Plate in 87 with Harry White up in brilliant style. So he was a master with horses, and you know, we don't have that sort of trainer too much now, but uh, he was good and he loved winning those cups. He'd love a plunge, but you couldn't work out what he was doing or where they were betting, if they were betting SP and, you know, in a big betting ring in Sydney on Metropolitan Day. You know, back when we used to race at Bendigo, it'd be a public holiday in Sydney, there'd be 150 bookies in Sydney and all the money would go on thousands and thousands of dollars off course. So, um, uh, they were halcyon years and he, um, oh, he was one of the greats. He's in the Hall of Fame and he, he really, Really was a master trainer. BM, you spoke about the challenges that sometimes young journalists and even older journalists would be presented with dealing with the racing trainers and potentially the jockeys from time to time. When did that start to shift? And can you think of a trainer that maybe paved the way for stables to be more open with the information and more media friendly? Yeah, Dick, it's a good question. I, I would say, because I've been a part of it, it probably sort of it was towards the, the 80s. And, and it's this radio station when we introduced um, a program uh, Keith Hillier and myself about 1988 uh, we started doing the Saturday morning trainer interviews you know which Gareth is doing now so it, it probably had its origins back then 
I remember saying to a young bloke called Lee Friedman, who'd only been in Melbourne for about, oh, maybe a year, 18 months, and his brothers, and, and they were certainly hitting the target. We could see that they were the new kids on the block against the great Bart Cummings and Angus Amanasco and Colin Hayes, which, you know, they'd, they'd sort of, you know, cornered the market as, as the great trainers and Tommy Smith and Sydney. And here was the new blood. And I remember saying to Lee Friedman, I always remember this, when we started that radio show, I rang him, and I said, Lee, look, um, we're doing this Saturday morning show and we're going to like to talk to the trainers for about an hour and then we'll have our panel show, just as, as Gareth is doing now with the team. And um, I said, would you like to come on and just discuss your horse's chances? Just tell us how they've been training, etc., etc." And he said, yeah. And I said, look, let me just tell you one thing. I remember Tommy Smith way back in the late 60s and 70s, no mobile phones, two Sunday papers out on a Sunday in Sydney with all the race coverage from Ramwick the day before and... Tommy Smith would say to all the journos up there, the leading racing riders, he'd say, all right, boys, I'm going to the, you know, Lucky Days Chinese restaurant tonight with the winning owners. You can get me there. So the journos would ring <laughs> that restaurant on the landline and get Tommy, and Tommy would give them, you know, 30 or 40 pars for the, for the paper the next day. Always got the headlines and plenty of press. And Tommy used to say, well, you know, what you've got to remember is that... Uh, I get more publicity than David Jones up here in Sydney and yeah. so I don't pay a cent for it. So I related <laughs> that story to Lee Freeman. He said, you're right. And that's probably, you know, uh, later 80s, that's where it all started to turn around. Yeah, and it's been um, must-listen for the punters out these these days ever since mm. with the Melbourne Form Panel and um, that's how everybody... Um, obviously, you can get information a lot differently now, um, BM, yeah. but... Back in those days, it would have been must listening, especially because you've never really had that type of service before. Yeah, and it's, you know, if you have to pay for a 30-second commercial on 3UZ at the time, it's probably going to cost you $80. Well, we, we'd give Lee Freeman six or seven minutes. and he, As he said, he didn't have to pay a dime for promoting their business. And at the end, it, it, everyone's a winner there because the more we find out more about your horses, it's good for betting, it's good for turnover. Turnover creates, you know, more money back into the industry, the prize money. So you had to sort of, uh, not so much come out of the closet, but you had to sort of reveal, and you can still get trainers and come on and talk to you for three minutes, Gareth, but give you nothing. Yeah. Um, because, it's, you know, there's still a bit of the old brigade there and maybe the owners, you know, should have first crack if there's going to be a bet, you know, a plunge or something landed. That's always the mystery and intrigue of it all. And may that long live too. We still need all that component in racing, Um but it's, you know, the younger Turks now, you know, I, I listen every Saturday morning, of course, and you hear Dave Eustace or, um, you know, the, uh, Wayne Hawks or any of those people. At least you know exactly what's happening. You'll, you'll say to them, well, what's your best? And they're pretty well on the mark. And uh, it's good. It's good. And as I say, everyone wins out of that. Um, it's all exposed online now with the TV programs that we get to. So it's all shifted. But it, uh, it was good back in those sort of cloak and dagger mystery days and these guys were, were masters of their craft and they, they could compete even when horses started to come from other countries and different training regimes. They could travel horses and they were just as competitive because they were, they were great horsemen. That was the essence of them. Brian, one of the rare positives about this pandemic is we've gone down memory lane a lot watching our sport. And one thing we've seen a lot of over the last couple of months, both on the racing stations and sports stations in general, have been some of the past great races. And a lot of those great races were called by you. And how have you felt watching the last couple of months when some of your magnificent race calls have been given some great airtime, both on Twitter, both on the TV? And it must make you very proud looking back at some of the great achievements you did get done while you're in the booth. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's an interesting comment there, Nick, and it's sort of 
you didn't take it for granted at the time, but I think what I'll always remember is when, you know, that uh, wall of horses at the Cox Plate when Mackay B. Diva won 11 horses across the track at the 600 metre mark and Mackay B. Diva winning a third Melbourne Cup and uh, northerly staving off fields of Omar to win the Caulfield Cup and Fu winning two Cox Plates. And then I, I got to call two of Winx's four. Um, I did a lot of black caviars when I was over at uh, SEN. So I think when I reflect back, I think, gee, I was lucky to see these great mares, to see these champions. I was there that day, Kingston Town won his third Cox Plate. I didn't call, Bill Collins was calling. I was the number two, so I was down on the ground. But remembering that, you know, that Manicardo cracked a million dollars in the Moya, 40 minutes later, the King won his third Cox Plate. So you, you bottle that 40 minutes up and you think, God, I was a part of that. Whether I was calling or I was there or Bone Crusher and our Waverley Star and I remember standing on the mound past the winning post on the lawn just where the owner's area is now and there's a mound there and watching that Cox Plate head on and I got to know Peter Mitchell who owned the Crusher and, and um, Frank Ritchie, the trainer, and I'd gone down to do interviews with them and they so became good friends. And I remember walking out. I think back now, how, how did this happen? It was 1986 or 87, whatever it was, and I remember walking out the tunnel behind the horses coming onto the track just because I was walking with the owner and the trainer. I mean, now I think, how, how did I do that? Um, and, and those memories are etched, and you, and you see, you know, when we reflect back to that great call of Bill Collins as that, you know, racing into equine immortality, I thought, how did he get that line so right? You know, how did he just get that word perfect? It was a beautiful call. It was just so crafted, and... Then I'll hear other calls that I did, and, and you know, you think, uh, how did I pull out that line with might and power? The earth starts to rumble, and what happened? Someone was running up some stairs near the broadcast box, and the bloody broadcast box was starting to shake. Um, <laughs> that's where I pulled the line out, but it seemed to work on the occasion. You know, all those great Melbourne Cups went did it and got up in the, by the narrowest of margins, and I don't think I could do it all again, or calling through five straight Cox plates. <laughs> Seeing him win two and seeing him bow out, you know, we, we retired him on the Friday, we announced it and he came out and came from last and put up his greatest performance ever to get up in a photo finish. And um, I don't think the nerves could actually put up with that again. I don't think I could do it all again, but it's great to reflect back on what Australian racing gives us. And, you know, being at Royal Ascot when uh, Black Caviar got the photo finish, I was there with a tour, and, uh, being there on track to see all that, see Frank, see Frank win the... Prince of Wales, I think it was the first day, and then the mayor came out in the final day. They're, they're moments to savour, so that's what racing's given me, and I've been so, so lucky. But um, to see the calls again and not have to go through the pressure of calling them all again, Nick, it's, it's quite satisfying. <laughs> hey, Best of both worlds. You're a star, BM. We could talk all day, mate. Um, <laughs> look forward to catching up you again down the track, and we'll get you on um, probably throughout the Country Cup circuit and... Um, um, as we go on and, and celebrate these country cups. Hey, good on you, Beam. Good luck on the punt tomorrow. Good on you guys. Thank you. There's Brian Martin.